Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Well, greetings and salutations on this glorious Sunday evening. Uh, hope everybody had a great day and opportunity to go and worship the Lord today. And if you don't have a church home, as always, I encourage you to find one near you. If you are in the Wetumpka Eclectic uh, Tallahassee area, you can come join us over at Friendship Baptist Church. We'd love to have you come be a part of what God's doing there. Hey, hope everybody survived the rain that we had today. Uh, a little little cooler today from versus yesterday, but hey, summer's coming, and we'll be complaining about how hot it is before long. So today we're going to start with uh, the or uh, continue rather with First Peter uh, chapter one. Last week we we were in First Peter chapter one verses one and two, uh, and today we'll start and we'll work we'll work our way through three chapter one verses three through twelve uh, today. So in all, as always. Uh, we'll have this uh, on RK Ministries podcast where you can find wherever podcasts are available. I encourage you to go find it, like it, subscribe it, and share it uh, with your friends and your family. Uh, you can share it with the enemies as well. That, that, that'd be fine too. They, they may need to hear it. Uh, YouTube, Facebook, obviously, but go find us on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share as well so we can continue to increase the audience and Always give a good, uh, always give a good review, right? Whether you like it or not, just give a good review. That helps the helps the algorithm, and maybe we can have uh, continue to increase the audience. So last week we we were in uh, verses one and two, and it's been an hour and twenty minutes on verses one and two. So I'm going, I'm not going to spend an hour and twenty minutes on these uh, eleven verses uh, or twelve verses we're going to look at to tonight, or eleven verses. But we will endeavor to get through them. Uh, so uh, I, did, I wanted to start back with verses 1 and 2 because you remember the whole premise of what Peter is writing this letter for is because these are Christians who's go, who are going to go into or be in or, or, or who are currently uh, enduring persecution and trials and tribulations. As we can say, we, we talked about last time that, you know, in... Uh, in the first century, toward the late end of the first century, that persecution in the in the state, i.e., Rome, was becoming a normal thing for Christians. While under Nero, it was generally more um, regional. It wasn't necessarily mandated by the state, and there were certain regions who would have more persecution than other. And it all, if 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 you follow me in Revelation, you understand a little bit of this stuff because it's a very similar time frame. And in Revelation, we learned that uh, in each one of those cities that those seven letters were written to, this persecution, this trial became uh, part of the Christian life because they there were being they were being forced to, or at least pressured to. Uh, give in to what we term the spirit of the age in the book of Revelation. And the same thing now, we have a spirit of the age now. It's, it's Satan and all those who are under his persuasion to try to lead us away from Christ rather than to Christ. 
And so during, uh, during this time, the Christians were being persecuted and uh, pressured to worship. Emperor worship was a big thing, being pressured to worship the emperor, being pressured to take part in the religious ceremonies that were associated with the trade guilds. If you, if, if uh, you were not part of a trade guild, you could not practice that trade, you know, kind of like, but not exactly equivalent to um, unions today. Uh, and that's another topic for another day. Uh, but these trade guilds, they were groups that you had to be part of so you could be able to. We, we hear it today in Hollywood. You know, they just had a strike not recently in Hollywood with the uh, Writers Guild. And so the Writers Union decided to strike for whatever benefits or, or whatever they, they wanted to have increased. And I think some of the actors have an actor's guild and all that kind of stuff. So uh, all of those things were pressuring onto the, the Christians to conform to those things, to give in to those things so that they could get along in society. And obviously, uh, when it comes to paganistic worship and bowing the knee to the emperor, that was something that Christians uh, just could not do. And so it would bring pressure upon them and persecution upon them uh, by those various agencies, by the state, whatever. When you get to Domitian's age, Domitian, he, he pretty much took Christians and he would use them to light up his, uh, his gardens. He would use them as human torches to light up his garden. So there, there were persecutions going on during that time as there are persecutions all around this world. And so Peter was writing this letter, much like Revelation was written. Revelation was written to encourage believers in the midst of persecution that God is on his throne. And so, uh, and, and they could have, they could have faith and they can endure, uh, because God is on his throne. He, he knows where they are. He hasn't abandoned them. And so Peter's writing to these Christians who are in the diaspora, the, the dispersion, Asia Minor. We talked about that, really that same region that we read about in Revelation. And so Peter was writing to these Christians to encourage them. And we know he was writing predominantly to, to um, Gentile Christians uh, in those areas. There may have been some Jews in, in there as well, but primarily he's writing to Gentile Christians. And in the first section, we learn that he begins to use language and we'll see throughout this letter, he uses language to encourage them by helping them understand they are part and parcel of the kingdom of God. They are the people of God. They have, they have uh, attained or have this inheritance and they're part of the promise and they are, they are God's nation and people and holy, holy people. And so he uses language that was ascribed to Israel in the Old Testament uh, to identify these Christians in the New Testament and helping them understand that they are, in fact, part of the covenant people uh, of God. And we read last week, we'll just read these two verses so we can get back into it, and then we'll go over to verses 3 through 12. But in verse 1 and 2, you remember, it says, To those who are elect exiles in of the diaspora, and then he lists those names. But again, he calls them elect because to be elect is to be saved. And so those who are saved are the elect. So he's identifying them as believers. They are the elect believers of the diaspora or the dispersion. Uh, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Bithynia, which we talked about was modern day Turkey. And he says, these people are the elect according to the foreknowledge 
of God the Father. And again, we talked about that extensively last week. You can go look that up if you want to have questions about that if you didn't hear last week's. In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. And so all of that was to encourage them that, hey, you are the elect of God. You have you are those who have by the foreknowledge of God been brought into the family of faith and you are being sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit for your obedience to Christ. So the implication is even in the midst of this persecution that's about to take place or that you may be enduring, God is calling you to faithful service because you are his children and he will ultimately bring about the greater good for your, for your life and you can patiently endure. And he ends that section with may grace and peace uh, be with you. And then he begins to continue to encourage them, not begins, he continues to encourage them in verses three through 12. And so the first section is verses three through five. And in verse three, we have this, the, at least the first part of this verse three, we have this uh, doxology, this opening doxology about God. And it reads in verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, it, it's akin to this idea of you know, the fullness of God and it identifies God, the father, and he is God, the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, it talks about his, it speaks of his magnificence, his greatness, um, in his grandeur, his glory. And it's because of who he is and who we are in Christ that you and I can uh, have a faith that is strong, a faith that uh, can face the consequent or not consequences, but the circumstances that we find ourselves in in this world. And the ironic thing that we're going to learn in this in this uh, passage is it is it is it is our faith in Christ, or in particular, talking about those that Peter was writing to. It was their faith in Christ that was bringing about this persecution because the world were, were the world was persecuting them for being followers of Christ in that they would not bow to the spirit of the age. But it is also that same faith on the flip side of that coin. It's also that same faith that strengthened them to be able to do what John says in Revelation to patiently endure and to be faithful in the midst of trial and persecution. And it's because of this this glorious God that we serve and because of our relationship with God through um, our faith in uh, Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the Trinity, God's son, God come in the flesh to stand in our law place. And because of our relationship with him, because God is enthroned, because Jesus is our mediator, then we can be confident in the, even in the midst of a great persecution. And, you know, when it comes to the idea of doxology and, and worship of the Lord, the higher our doxology, the, the greater is our worship of the Lord, right? And the greater is our level of faithfulness to him. And so the more we understand about the greatness and the grandeur of God, the more it will compel us as believers to be obedient and, and act in ways that bring glory and honor to his holy name. I think uh, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, 
the greater our orthodoxy or our doctrine or our understanding of the truths of God and the, who he is and what he's done, the greater our level of worship to him and the greater our level of obedience to him. And a high, a high orthodoxy will ultimately lead to a high doxology and those together will lead to our uh, a high uh, orthopraxy uh, or a practicing or a living out of our faith in this world or, or following the Lord uh, faithfully and doing the things that he's asked us to do, even in the face of difficulty and trial. And that's really where that's really where Peter's aiming at, uh, what he's aiming at with this uh, with this letter that he's written to these Christians who are enduring persecution. And then he describes to them all these things that he's saying is to prepare them to be able to place their hope and their trust uh, continually, faithfully uh, in Christ, even in the midst of persecution. So he's reminding them of who they are in Christ. They are the elect of God by the foreknowledge. They are the elect by the foreknowledge of God. And it's because of God, the father, God, the son, and God, the spirit, that they have this confident hope uh, in their eternal destiny. And in light of that, they ought to be, they should live um, in faithfulness to Yahweh. And so the next phrase in verse three is according to his great mercy. Uh, that's God, uh, God, the father's great mercy, uh, which comes to us by way of Jesus Christ, who went and died on the cross for us and made a way for us to be able to receive the mercy of God as we bow our knee to Christ as Lord and savior uh, of our life. And this word mercy that we said, that's translated in, in the English mercy, um, elos in, in the Greek, but it is used, the same Greek word is used often in the Old Testament to translate the Hebrew word uh, or, or to be used to translate the Hebrew word hesed. Now we're going through the Psalms on Wednesday night in, uh, at, at Friendship Baptist Church and we've been doing that for quite some time. We're on Psalm uh, 105, I think we, we finished it up last Wednesday. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're getting in the short road, but we still, you know, have quite a few Psalms, uh, to go 45 to be exact, uh, to go. Uh, so we've got several weeks before we'll be done with, with the Psalms, but in the Psalms, I don't, I, I, I haven't counted the times, but over and over and over again, we encounter the word hesed, the, the Hebrew word hesed, uh, in the Psalms and that Hebrew word almost always not always, but uh, quite a, very frequently, it's probably the better way to put it, in the Psalms, that word hesed is translated as uh, loving kindness. Uh, or sometimes it's his faithful love, and sometimes it's mercy in the English. But the idea behind this word hesed, it is God's covenantal love toward his people. And so there's a specificity to this kind of love that God is demonstrating. I get it. You know, God loves the world in general, right? He, he loves creation. He loves the world, the, the world of humanity in general. But there is a specific love that God has for his people. And it's demonstrated in this faithful, unceasing, 
never wavering love that God has for his covenant people. And we saw that in the life of Israel, right? Israel always reneged on uh, the covenant of, that God made with them. They, they always failed and, and God brought judgment and then he would restore them. And that restoration is a demonstration of God's hesed, his covenantal love. And I think Peter understands this. Why? Because he's using language, uh, and will you continue to use language that is ascribed to Israel in the Old Testament as God's covenant people. And he's now, he's now binding that to who Christians are uh, as God's covenant people. And he's, he's making that connection, just like Jesus, where he talked about breaking down the middle wall of separation, making one new man out of the two. And just like we talked about in, in Romans 11, where Paul reminds us that there's one olive tree and there are there are natural branches that are on that olive tree, which are Jewish believers. And there are wild branches that have been grafted into that olive tree, which are Gentile believers. And there's one people of God. And so Paul, Peter's reminding them in this letter that you are the people of God. You are the chosen, the elect ones, the called out one, ones of God by his foreknowledge. And it's according to his mercy. And don't miss that when it comes to salvation, because the next phrase is, the next, next phrase is, or the end of that phrase is, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And we don't need to miss that when we're thinking about salvation because in our day, again, I know I sound like a broken record, but I think it's something that needs to be repeated over and over and over and over again in our day because in our day, uh, we are... We are semi-Pelagian at best, and maybe uh, we follow after Pelagian wholeheartedly sometimes with the way we present the gospel because we are, the gospel in the modern world, the gospel at least in, in America, is so man-centered that sometimes we forget that what the Bible says is that it is because it is according to his mercy, not my works, not my effort, not my ability, not who I am, it's according to God's mercy that I am part of that elect group who have been called out by God. And he doubles down on this issue uh, when he says that he has caused us to be born again. I don't cause myself to be born again. I couldn't cause myself to be born for the first time. And I definitely can't cause myself to be born again uh, the second time in versus the physical versus the spiritual birth. And we've encountered this kind of language in God's word on, on Sunday mornings. We're in, in at Friendship. We're in, John, we're in the Gospel of John. We just finished up chapter five uh, today. And you can go find all of these sermons. Um, we do them on Facebook Live, but you can also find them on my podcast, RK Ministries podcast. Every Sunday this evening, I'll put up today's a sermon when I get done here and put this up on the podcast, but you can go find uh, John chapter three, where we, Jesus uh, encountered Nicodemus. And when he was talking to Nicodemus, we heard this phrase, you must be born again. Now to be quite fair or honest, the, the Greek in, in uh, Genesis, or John chapter three, rather uh, is really indicates being born from above. 
born spiritually. Now, now the, the greater implication is the change that takes place when we are born from above, hence the idea of being born again. And I think that's congruent with the rest of the language in the New Testament, because in the New Testament, Paul uses language like you were, you were brought from death to life. And the, the idea behind this language is to help us understand and see the, the radical change that takes place when a person who is dead in their trespasses and sin is brought from death to life like Lazarus uh, was brought from the grave, being dead three days in the grave. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and he comes forth. It is that same kind of imagery that we need to think about when we think about salvation today. And, but for the most of us, when, when people preach the gospel and teach the gospel or share the gospel, it's always about what you can do. Well, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. All, all, I, I say it like this. The only thing you can do is respond to the truth. That's all you can do. You don't save yourself. It's because of God that you are saved. It takes a, it takes a work of God in your heart to awaken you to the need of, the, of a savior, to awaken you to the understanding that you are a sinner and that you are guilty and that you need a savior. It is all of God. He caused us to be born again. And, and again, uh, uh, again, it's that radical change that, that takes place in a human being when God removes that heart of stone and he puts in that heart of flesh. And so Peter is using this language to comfort and bring assurance to these Christians who are undergoing persecution. And I think that is a very encouraging thing for them to know that it's because of who God is, this blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're saved and you're kept according to his mercy, and he's the one who caused you to be born again. And so if he's done it, then he's never going to undo that, right? Because he talks about this mercy, this this covenant love that God has for his people. And they could see the history of God's covenant love for Israel. And Peter is applying that to these Gentile Christians in that day. And the same thing is true for us. And the same thing is true for those Christians around the world today who are facing similar persecution to the, these first century Christians that Peter's writing to. We in America are in that oasis of freedom that most Christians in the history of Christianity have never uh, experienced. Uh, and but but there are those around this world who are experiencing the very same things that these people uh, were experiencing as the pressure and persecution and tribulation that is coming upon them. And there is an underlying temptation, I think, that we'll see unfold in in this text that Peter's writing. The temptation is, and I think he brings it out as we get later in or, or get toward the, the toward verse 12. The, the temptation is, hey, what does it hurt for me? to say in the first century, first century to go to this um, temple of, of the emperor and offer my little pinch of incense. What does it hurt just to, if, if that's all I have to do, right? I don't have to get involved with the rest of the stuff. What if I just, just give a little bit of a token, just a little nod to, to them so they'll leave me alone and I can, I can get on. That's the pressure of the world today, isn't it? That's the pressure of the world today. Just, just, hey, just be accepting of what's going on. You, you don't have to buy into it. You don't have to agree with it. Just be accepting of it, though. And again, they try to lead us down this road to give in to the spirit of the age. And when we as Christians can't do that because of our faith in Christ and because of what God's truth says in his word, and we have to stand on the truth of God. We have to obey God rather than man. Then that same temptation is there for us all the time. And it comes from the outside and the inside. 
Again, to go back to Revelation, that was the pressure that we saw in the churches, in those seven churches. Is And, and again, don't think that it doesn't relate to what Peter's writing about. Similar time frames, similar place, right? Or really the same general area. And so those pressures are there from the inside the church. You had those people who were pressuring folks to give in. And from the outside the church, you were having people pressuring them to give in. And we see that exact same thing today as it relates to the alphabet mafia and all the, 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 the groups that uh, tag on to that uh, acronym. And you and I, as believers, we'll have to stand strong on God's word. And what we need to do is what Peter's encouraging these Christians to do is understand who it is you serve, that God's not taken by surprise, that he's the sovereign creator of this universe. He's the sovereign Lord who he has caused you to be born again. And it's he who keeps you until the very end. And so he gives them some more encouragement and more hope. He says, he's the one who's caused you to be born again. And he's caused you to be born to a living hope. Well, the ultimate hope that we have is the same hope that the first century Christians have. What was that hope? Ultimately, is that God would complete in them what he started to the end, that if they die, they would be raised from the dead, just like Jesus was raised from the dead. And we're going to get to that in John chapter 6 in the next couple of weeks, uh, where Jesus makes this declaration that 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 you can't come to me unless the father draws you. And ultimately, if the father draws you and you come to me, then I will, if the father draws you, you're coming to me and I will never cast you out. I will raise you up. And we'll talk more about that on, on that Sunday. So I encourage you to find those sermons and, and, and follow along with those because that's a, that is a powerful implication that, that you and I need to understand. Again, salvation is all of Christ and it's all of God, and God has promised that he would never cast us out, that we would be raised up in the last day if we bow our knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's our living hope. That's the hope of today and the hope of tomorrow, all right? And so you and I can live in light of that hope, knowing the God that we serve. And he says that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through in another side of that living hope as well just popped in my mind is the idea that uh, death is not the end, that God is the God of the living, right? He, he, we, we continue to live even beyond that day that our body goes in the tomb. And one day the, the ultimate uh, promise is that our bodies will be resurrected and we'll have a brand new body just like we have a brand new regenerate soul. And he says, this is done through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I'm telling you, the cross is a very important aspect of redemptive history. And I know I'm stating the obvious, right? And if Jesus had not gone to the cross, then there would be no means of redemption. That's why the Bible tells us that he, for one time, for all time, took care of the requirements necessary for us to be reconciled to God, for us to be deemed not guilty, for us to be able to stand in the presence of God and, 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 and endure or stand in the midst of the judgment that, that is coming to this world is because we'll be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because Jesus dealt with sin once for all. And so if you will place your faith in him, then he says those who uh, call out to him will be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so 
The cross is very important. But don't forget that last part. Believe that God's raised him from the dead. The same thing Peter's saying right here. The cross means nothing if the resurrection doesn't take place. If the resurrection does not take place, if the resurrection is not a, a, a literal historical event that took place, then Christianity has nothing to stand on. It is the resurrection of Christ that seals the deal, that he is who he said he was and that he could do what he said he could do, namely forgive us of our sin and pay for our sin debt on the cross of Calvary. And so Peter, again, encouraging these believers in the face of this persecution, in the face of these trials that they're going to take, he is encouraging them to remember who they are. <clears throat> they are the elect of God not because of their power and their ability, but it's because of God's foreknowledge. It's, by, it's according to God's mercy. It is according to God's uh, work in action. He has caused them to be born again. And it is validated in the person, Jesus Christ, and his being raised from the dead. And the same thing is true for you today. No matter what trial it is, you may not be facing the same kind of persecution or trials that these believers were facing in the first century especially as an American Christian. But all of us go through difficulty and tough times in our life. All of us face circumstances in, in our life that are unpleasant, right, that are hard to deal with. And sometimes we can get to the place where we feel like the walls are caving in around us, right? We, sometimes we get to the place where we throw up our hands and say, what, what is the use? How can we continue on in, doing the, in, in living this way, right? Well, for us, we need to grab hold of the same idea that Peter is giving to these believers. We need to understand who we are in Christ Jesus. We need to understand... That, that it is in Christ that we find our hope. It is in Christ that we find our joy. It's in Christ that we find our peace. And it's in that joy and, and peace and hope that we find in Jesus Christ that we can continue to endure and be fruitful for the kingdom of God, even in the midst of difficulty and trial that we see in our life. So that leads us, um, and I said I wasn't going to go an hour and a half, but uh, we're, we're just on the, the end of verse three and beginning verse four says, and this has to do with this, this living hope. He begins to describe for us this living hope that we find in Christ. And really, you, you can almost say this is the continuation of the work of God in our life because uh, if you look at the passage, at least the way it's translated in the English, according to his great mercy, he's caused us, one, to be born into, or to be born again. Uh, and he's caused us, if you will, to be born to a living hope, and he's caused us to be born to an inheritance, uh, and that inheritance is we're joint heirs with Christ, right? We in, we inherit, uh, in, as it were, the kingdom of God. We inherit uh, being the children of God. We inherit the blessings that come with being a child of God and in the kingdom of God, and ultimately we inherit that eternal life that we find in in Christ Jesus. And then he tells us this inheritance, this, this tied to this hope, this tied uh, to this being born again, this inheritance that we have. Listen how he describes this inheritance. And again, he's driving home this nail of confidence in their walk and faith in, uh, that comes with their faith in Jesus Christ, that God is with them. God has, has not abandoned them and they can patiently endure and be faithful to God even in the midst of the trial. And look at this inheritance. It is imperishable. It's never going to perish. It's eternal. 
that eternal life that we talk about in, in the gospel of John quite often. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life or have that eternal life. And that's both quality and quantity. Quantity in that life never ends, but it's life that never ends as being in the presence of God, but it's also quality in that God has promised that whenever we come to faith in him, that we, um, that, that, that we can have abundant life now in, in abundance doesn't necessarily mean abundance of stuff. It means abundance in peace, abundance in joy, abundance in happiness, abundance in purpose in our life. Uh, he, he uh, Jesus said, I came that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. So there's this quantity, quality of life that's also part of this everlasting life. It is in, per, imperishable. It's undefiled. Why? Because it's, from, it's by the perfect work of God. It's the perfect righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us. It's not our righteousness, which is as filthy rags. It's Christ's righteousness that's been imputed to us. It's God's uh, inheritance from his perfect uh, character and his perfect holiness that has been set aside for us. And look, he's saying he's keeping it in heaven for you. And the, the idea of keeping it in heaven is more than, hey, it's way off out yonder. It's, it's, the idea is that it's in the presence of God. He has charge of it in his throne room. It is being kept for you till such day that Christ will come again. We'll see uh, later on in this passage. And so this Precious inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's never going to fade. It's never going to wane. It's never going to waver. It is God's imperishable, undefiled, unfading promise to you that he keeps in his presence at his throne room till such time that Christ comes again and your faith becomes sight and you become glorified. Your, your, your inner man, uh, your outer man rather will match your inner man in that you will receive a brand new glorified body suited for eternity in the presence of God forever. And he's saying to these Christians, you need to see that, see who you are and you can patiently endure whatever's coming, uh, your way. And then uh, he goes on to say that he guards this by his power in verse five. It says, who by God's power are being, the who refers to these elect, these, these believers, these believers are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. Isn't that a powerful phrase? It, it is God who is guarding you. Well, who else in the world would, would, you know, the Bible tells us in Romans, I think it's Romans chapter eight, where it says, if, if any, who can be against us, you know, if God's for us, who can be against us? Well, no one can be against us if God is for us. And if God is your guard, who do you think is going to be able to overcome that, uh, that guardianship? Well, not a single person on planet earth. No. And, and the idea is no matter what happens to you, here, no matter what happens to you on this planet, no matter what, no matter what happens to you in this life, that God is guarding this inheritance that is coming you, coming to you at the coming of Christ, and nothing can take that away from you. That's why Paul writes like he writes in Romans chapter eight again. You know, who can separate us from the love of God? Can death? No. Can the depths of the ocean? No. Can angels or principalities? No. Nothing can separate us from the love 
of God in Christ Jesus, because it's by the power of God that our eternal salvation is being guarded. And it is through our faith in Christ, for by grace are you saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, right? It's through our faith in God that uh, in Christ Jesus, that we have this salvation that God has caused to be ha caused to happen in us through this regenerate new birth that he's talking about. And God is guarding that. He is the author and finisher of our faith. I don't start it and I can't end it. Right. And I like it this way. There's a lot of people in this world who think that when you come to faith in Christ, that you can lose your salvation, right? Some Arminians, you know, Arminius, I think, even believed that. And some people who follow that ilk believe that still today. But I like what John Calvin says about that. If you could lose your salvation, you would lose your salvation. Why? Because you couldn't keep your, you couldn't keep the law anyway. You couldn't live a righteous life anyway. The best you could do is filthy rags to God. And so it's not about what you've done. It's all about what God's done. And he's the one that's guarding that. And, and if he's guarding it, then there's no way that it can be, uh, it can be taken away from you. Uh, no way that it, it, you can lose your salvation because it's God who is guarding that. And he will complete, as Paul says, uh, I'm persuaded that he is able to complete that which he has started in me, right? That's my paraphrase of that verse. Anyway, in this, ultimately, we will be revealed in the last times. And here's what we need to understand. The salvation, if we look at Romans chapter 8 again, uh, not to go back to the same spot, but if you look at Romans chapter 8, somewhere around verse 28, 29, 30, in that, 32, 1 to 32, in that area, there is this golden chain of redemption that we see in Romans chapter 8 where it talks about God's foreknowledge. We talked about that last time. It talks about God's predestining in us based on that foreknowledge. And he's talking about those who are predestined are called and those who are called are, are, are sanctified. And those who are sanctified are justified. And those who are justified are glorified. And all of those things are aorist tense verbs, I believe. And the idea in the aorist tense is a simple form of, of the past. And it just simply states that this is an action that has happened. Now, the implication for that, uh, to the implication of that for us is that those things that God describes us as being, those things in the mind of God are things that have already taken place. We've already been sanctified. We've already been justified. We've already been glorified. Well, we know that we are still in the process of sanctification, right? And that's why Paul writes in a, in, in one way about our salvation, that it, it, it is, a, is the past present tense kind of, kind of thing, uh, that there is this idea of our positional sanctification or that we are sanctified as God declared us that way. And then there is this idea of our progressive sanctification that we are being sanctified, um, you know, God's still working on me, Romans chapter seven kind of thing. And so in this life, we know we haven't reached full sanctification yet. That God is still working on us, but there's coming a day in those last days when Christ comes again, that that sanctification, what God already stated about us, that we are sanctified, will become a present reality in our life. When Christ comes again, we will wholly and completely be sanctified. And then at that moment, we will be glorified uh, and have our brand new glorified bodies as Christ has a glorified body. And so, uh, and, and it is by, don't, don't miss this in verse five. It's by the power of God. 
And so, again, if we go back through these passages, if you remember in verse verses 1 and 2, it was about God's foreknowledge that these believers were his elect. And then we see here that it's according to God's mercy in verse 3 that these people are his elect, his saved ones, his called out ones. It is by God's power that he calls them to be born again that we see here. It is by God's power that through this new birth, they have this living hope. It is by God's power uh, that they have this inheritance. It is by God's power that this inheritance is kept, and it's by God's power that these believers and this inheritance is guarded till that day that Christ comes again and our faith becomes sight. And the idea, and I've stated this already, there, there is a paradox in what Peter is, what, what's happening in this letter that Peter's writing. And the paradox is that it is their faith in Christ that is causing them to endure this persecution. But again, paradoxically, it is their faith in Christ that allows them to have the strength to endure that persecution. Listen to what Calvin said related to this. This is a paraphrase of what Calvin said. Paradoxically, it is their faith in Christ that has put them in jeopardy with respect to their society. But is it is that very faith in Christ that identifies them as legitimate heirs whom God powerfully protects. And that's the that's the point that Peter's trying to get across in this section, at least, in, if not in the whole letter. That it's because of God, because your faith in him, that you can endure, that you can overcome, that you can withstand the persecution and trials that are coming <clears throat> your way. And that leads us to verse six, joy in the trials. In verse six, he says, in this you rejoice. Now, what's the in this talking about? The in this is everything that we've just read from verse one all the way through verse five. Everything we've just talked about, he says, in these things you rejoice. And then he says, though, and there, there are several those in this next section, really verses six through eight there are three three those so in this in your status as the elect of god and all the things that come bound up in that that it is god who's caused you to be elected is god who uh has caused you to be born against god who has brought you into this hope and this inheritance is god who guards this it's according to god's mercy and those things in god and in your relationship with god that is solid and sound because of who God is, in that you rejoice, though, he says, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That's an interesting phrase. Now, I, I didn't say this at the beginning, but th this in the Greek is like one continuous sentence that we've been reading so far that Peter has made. And so he's saying, all these things I've just told you about who you are in Christ and how it is that you came to faith and the security of your faith, the perseverance of, of the believer that is found in God's protecting you and guarding you and guarding that inheritance and that rejoice. I mean, that's, that's the place you and I got to live. We got to get to the place we live right there. 
It's just like Paul says, you know, Philippians 4, I think it is, where Paul says, hey, I, I know how, you know, we always quote this verse and we don't know the context of it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that is true in a general sense. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. But Paul's context was, it doesn't matter if I have a lot. I know how, I know how, to, how to live with a lot and, and embrace or endure or face the difficult the difficulties that come with having a lot. And I know how to live with having very little and embrace the difficulties that come and the challenges that come with having very little. And he says, then in all things, or in, in Christ, I can do all things. And so it is the Christ that gave him the power, no matter what his circumstance was, to be able to endure because his faith and his his hope and his joy and and you know his strength came from God and it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't tempered by the circumstances that he was in and that mean life was always easy and it always felt easy no but he knew that no matter what the circumstances were it was Christ who was with him and Christ who would strengthen him through even the most difficult times in life and then in this passage he says even if it's necessary for you and that's an interesting phrase isn't it because sometimes I think God allows testing and tribulation to come our way. And we're so afraid of that word, right? Because we, we have misunderstood what's happening in that time frame. Because we always associate this, uh, the tribulation ultimately with the judgment of, of God that is coming. And, and there is a sense that in, in a maybe a, a literary way that we can define that tribulation as the, the judgment of God on this earth. And so we, we, we get afraid of what's going to happen, but we forget that even if, even if we, even if believers are alive in that time, that the Bible says that we're not children of wrath. And so if tribulation in that sense is the wrath of God on the world, then we're not under the wrath of God, but nowhere in the Bible does it say we're not, prone to persecution and trials. And again, I think you can loosely define tribulation as a type of persecution and not pigeonhole it all the time with this aspect of the judgment of God. But there's nowhere in the Bible that indicates that we will not endure difficulty and tribulation and trials and persecution. We'll never endure the judgment of God because we, we are not children of wrath, right? Uh, we, we, the only way we overcome that is through a relationship with Jesus. But Sometimes I think it's necessary for us to go through difficult times to test our faith, to strengthen our faith as we see other places uh, in God's word. But where do we rejoice? Well, we find our rejoicing in God, right? In who we are in Christ. So in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, and again, this too shall pass, right? Even if, this, this is easy to say, it's easy preaching, hard living, right? Even if your life is riddled with one trial after another guess what eventually you'll go to be with christ i know you say man that's harsh right but it's the truth right this life is fleeting it is but a moment in time and it can't compare to the eternal glories that are going to come when we uh when when, when christ comes again and he he uh, rectifies the curse that's on this earth. So even for this little while, if it's necessary, and even if that little while means it is the totality of your life, uh, we find our hope in our, and we can find our rejoicing in Christ. And I get it. He's a preaching hard living. You have been grieved by various trials. And again, the, these trials or these these temptations is, uh, is translated in other places as temptation. And that's where you're bringing this idea that part of these trials may be the temptation to 
for lack of a better way to say it, abandon the faith by giving in to the culture, giving in to the spirit of the age. Uh, and he's saying not that people can lose their salvation, but he's saying it's very tempting to succumb to the pressures of the culture in order to get out of doing uh, or to get out from under the persecution and the trial. And I get it. Easy preaching, hard living, right? And I, I can't remember the name of the movie. But there's a movie out that is a very, very good movie. It's a heart-wrenching movie in some ways, but it's about missionaries who go to, I think it's Japan. It's China, Japan, um, early in uh, Western history. And at some point, they have to come to the place where either either they have to step on in a, as a sign of denigration, a, a picture of Christ, right, uh, that is on the ground, so that the people who are Christians who have given their life to Christ won't be killed or tortured. And so it puts them in a very precarious situation. And I can't remember the name of it. I tell you, and you could go watch it. Now I get in one way, you know, that little picture, picture or symbol on there is probably not accurate anyway, because most of the pictures we see about Christ have, they, they are no way what Christ would have looked like, uh, right? Blonde hair, blue eyes, uh, kind of, you know, shampoo model-ish uh, pictures that, that, that Christ wouldn't have looked like that. But anyway, uh, the point I was getting at is there are times when we feel the pressure from the spirit of this age to give in a little just so we can stop the pain of others or even stop our own pain and suffering and trial. And the Lord is championing us to rejoice in him and to be able to patiently endure the difficulties. That, that's the theme that runs through Revelation. This is a call for the believers to patiently endure. Uh, and so Christ is saying, the Lord's saying through Peter, this is how you do that. You rejoice in who you are in Christ. You rejoice in who God is and what he has done for you and what he has holding for you. And you rejoice in that and you continue to live in faith, even in the midst of trial. So it goes on. Though, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the testing, the tested genuineness of your faith. And again, we see this in other places. Uh, I think it's James that talks about the testing of our, of our, of our, or the tests and trials that come, they strengthen our faith. And it is a way that God does hone our faith and strengthen our faith. And so even through these trials, there's something ultimately that, that good that comes out of that, that our faith uh, will be strong or stronger. Uh, and he says, this faith is more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire. And the idea is it removes the dross from the gold and the impurities from the gold and it, and it purifies the gold. And so these tests and trials have a way of purifying our faith and trust uh, in Almighty God and I think our faithfulness to him. And so again, to read this whole phrase again, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And isn't that powerful, man? That we will live a life that in the end, we can hear that phrase, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And in the midst of these trials, we can say, 
we can we can rejoice and praise and glory and honor God in the way that we have lived our life. And so when he comes again, that it will be praise and glory and honor at the coming of our Lord, because we have patiently endured and we have we have strengthened our faith and our resolve uh, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, to be faithful to him, even in the midst of difficulty and trial. And I think in another, uh, in other places in, in, in the scripture, it tells us to count it all joy. Again, it may be James, count it all joy uh, when you encounter trials because of your faith in Christ. And then the second though is in verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. You remember what uh, Jesus told Thomas? When Thomas says, I'm not going to believe until I put my hands in his wounds, right? Now, touch that uh, that wound in his side or in his, in his hands and his feet. And he has the opportunity to do that. And Jesus says to him that hey, you believe now that you see and that you touch. And he says, blessed are those who believe and do not see. And he's talking about us. Blessed are those who have not seen the Lord and yet love him. And again, you know, what a powerful, what a powerful testimony to those who would, who, who love the Lord and have that faith in the Lord. And though you have not seen him, you love him and it drives your faith for him. And then the third, though, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And it's by that faith that we are saved. And it's through that faith that we're able to endure because we trust the God uh, who has brought us salvation. And he says, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. May, man, may we, may we live a life like that, right? That no matter what the circumstances are in this world, that because our love is so great and our faith is so deep in, in, in our Lord Jesus Christ, that we rejoice with joy no matter what the circumstances are. And we do it in such a way that we can't even, we can't even manufacture the words to express the, the joy and the gratitude and, and, and the glory that we feel for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to verse nine, obtaining the outcome of your faith. What's the outcome of our faith? What that hope is ultimately the salvation of our souls. It's ultimately the completion of what God has started in us. And that happens when Christ comes uh, again. And so the, the, again, the whole premise is, listen, this is who you are. You are the elect of God and you are the elect of God because of God's uh, foreknowledge. You're the elect of God. It is because he has caused you to be born again. It's because of his uh, great mercy that you have found yourself to be uh, the elect of God. And you rejoice in that because he's guarding this hope and this inheritance at the very, and in his very presence, in his throne room, until that day when he says, go get my children. And Jesus comes again. And so he's saying, listen, and even in the midst of trial and tribulation, live in light of the Savior and, and the, the authority that you, that you see in the Savior that you serve. And don't let the circumstances sway your faith. And then that leads us to the last section, or second to last section, uh, verses 10 through 12. Uh, it says the, the Christian's advantage over the prophets and angels. And he goes on concern, encouraging them about this salvation. And this salvation is not something that just it just came about. This is the eternal decree of God to bring, uh, to redeem to himself a people. And he says in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the, about the grace that was to be yours, talking about these Christians and every Christian after them, 
says they searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories of Christ. So the, even the prophets longed to see what we see in the person of Jesus Christ. They longed to see the fulfillment of what this promise was that God was, was working in them and in causing them to proclaim uh, to the nation of Israel and the nations of the world. And they, they sought to know what you and I can look back on and see and place our faith in and understand who Christ is and when he came and what he done. We understand his glories that, that, that God gave, the Father gave to him as Christ prayed in his, his, uh, his, his prayer in, in John chapter 17, glorify me with the glory that I once had when I was in your presence before. And, and what Paul says at the end of Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11, that he's going to exalt him and give him a name that's above every name. We we live on the backside uh, of that and we can rejoice that we see even what the prophets longed to see. And the same thing uh, with the angels. Verse 12 says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. They understood that what they were talking about was something that was going to come for another generation of people. And he goes on to say, in these things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, the same spirit of Christ that was in the prophets is the same spirit of uh, Holy Spirit that's in those who are proclaiming the gospel today. It's the same spirit that lives in every single believer uh, that comes to faith in Jesus Christ. So it's by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And again, we'll see all of that. We talked a little bit about this idea of sending in the gospel of John and salvation. Again, another tangent. Salvation is a Trinitarian event. In it, it is the God, it is God the Father who decreed in eternity past with God the Son and God the Spirit that He would call unto Himself a people. It was God the Father who sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ willingly submitted to that role of suffering servant. Uh, to come and to endure the pains of death and endure the 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 wrath of the Father against sin on our behalf, and it is the Father and the Son that send the Spirit to to draw men and convict men of sin of justice and uh, just uh, sin of judgment and righteousness, uh, and so it is a trinitarian work that brings people to salvation uh, in Christ Jesus. And so we see that same Trinitarian work manifested here in the writing of John. It's God the Father, it's God the Son, and it's God the Spirit who are all involved in the redeeming work of humanity. And so I think sometimes we, we forget that, that this is a, this is a triune uh, uh, redemption that takes place. All three persons of the Trinity uh, are involved in bringing men and women and boys and girls to salvation. And it started before God said, let there be light. <clears throat> and then verse 13, we'll be done. And, and, and Peter gives them a reason. Now, if I say Paul through this, you know, Paul's prominent in uh, all of our minds as believers. He, he wrote the majority of the New Testament. And so my mind may say, my mouth may say Paul, my mind's thinking Peter. And so if you hear Paul in, in the midst of our study of Peter, just know I'm talking about Peter. So in verse 13, Peter gives them the purpose. You know, this is why you rejoice in all these things. This is why you need to understand uh, who you are in Christ. 
because he says, I know where you are and I know what's happening and I know what you're about to endure. And he says, because of who you are in Christ, because of all these things I just said about you and the promise that God has made to you, the, 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 the Hesed, the, the, the Elos, the, the, the covenantal love that God has for you, that God has caused you to be saved and he's protecting you and he's keeping you and he's keeping that inheritance because of all that assurance that you understand about who you are in Christ. Therefore, here's how you need to live. And that's where the, as J. Vernon McGee would say, this, this is where the rubber meets the road, right? This is how you and I ought to live because the same things that Paul, Peter, excuse me, I said it there, right? the same things that Peter says about these believers is true about us. Who they are in Christ and what God has done for them and what Christ has done for them, all those things, same things are true for the 21st century uh, believer just like they were for the first century believer. And he says, therefore, this is how you ought to live. And you guys hear me say this all the time. And you probably get tired of hearing me say this. There is no concept in God's word where a person can claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, one who was dead in their trespasses and sin and brought to life that radical change, one who had a heart of stone stone that was removed and a brand new heart of flesh was put in that one who lived in darkness, but was brought to light. There's no concept in God's word where that kind of radical transformation that takes place in a person's life does not equal them living for Jesus Christ in obedience. And, and there's a lot of people who have this great aversion to Lordship salvation, but salvation essentially is you bowing your knee to Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. He, he, is not, he, he, he is not one or the other. He is both Lord and Savior. And whenever you bow your knee to him, you surrender your will to him and it impacts the way that you live. And he says, therefore... And really, it's prepare your mind for action in the ESV, but quite literally and woodenly, it would be gird up the loins of your mind. And I love that, the way that's, that is worded, because it gives you that great mental picture. In those days, you know, they wore, they wore the long flowing clothes, uh, man dresses, I call them. And whenever they got ready to work, they would gird that, all that that was hanging down, they would gird that up about their waist to to keep from encumbering them from working in the field or catching fish or whatever it was. So they would prepare themselves for work. And that's what the Lord's saying through Peter in this passage, because of who you are in Christ, because of everything I've just said to you, you've got to live in this world and here's how you do it. You gird up the loins of your mind. You prepare your mind for action in this world. <coughs> And being sober-minded. How do you prepare your mind before I get off on being sober-minded? How do you prepare your mind? You know, we talked about in Sunday school this morning, this verse came up, is take every thought captive unto the Lord. That's one way. How do you prepare your mind? Paul tells us in chapter 12 of Romans, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Well, how does your mind renew? Well, it's the work of God in you. And what is the tool that God uses to ultimately renew your mind? What is the, what is the tool that God uses to sanctify your, your inner man, your inner being? Well, it's the truth of his word primarily through the person of the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus pray again in his prayer in John chapter 17 for those who would come to follow him? He says, Lord, sanctify them with truth. 
and he says, your word is truth. And what's the role of the Holy Spirit? One of the roles of the Holy Spirit, uh, the third person of the Trinity in our life as believers is to lead us into all truth. So it's the truth of God's word that sanctifies our mind, prepares our minds. So we need to be people of the word. If we want our minds to be prepared for action in this world, we need to, we need to be intentional about feeding our minds, the things of God. And then he says, be sober minded. And some, some may have singleness of mind, but I think this sober minded idea is, uh, it has this idea of being in control, right? And so the implication is not letting other things control or influence your mind. So it goes hand in hand with this idea of girding up your mind. And you can think of it through, you know, the Lord tells, I think it's in uh, Hebrews, uh, I forget which chapter in Hebrews, but the author of Hebrews says, don't be drunk with wine, but but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, in, in my mind, that kind of that kind of goes hand in hand with what we're talking about here about sober mindedness, because what happens if you're inebriated with alcohol or some other substance? Uh, it, it changes your mind, right? It changes your faculties. You lose some control of your faculties and your mind. And what the, what the Lord is saying here is be sober minded, be in control of your mind. And how do we have a right control of our mind? Well, we gird our mind up for action. We feed it with God's word. We become controlled in our thinking in this world. We have a biblical worldview. And the only way we can ever get to that place is the work of God in our lives as we begin to Feast on the truth of God's word. So if you're not a person who studies God's word and you claim to be a follower of Christ, then I guarantee you there's some places in your in your inner man, places in your, quote, mind that you have not girded up. You are not in control in the sense, are not uh, controlled in your thinking as a biblical way of thinking. You might not even have a fully developed biblical worldview. So I'd encourage you to get on your knees and get in God's word and ask God through his word and through the person of the Holy Spirit to help you gird up your minds for action and help you be sober minded and set your hope. He says fully, completely, totally is the implication behind that word fully in the ESV. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's kind of like what Paul says, Colossians, I think it's Colossians chapter three, he tells us to set our minds on the things that are above. Our focus ought to be kingdom focused. Now that, you know, the Bible tells us to be in the world, but not of the world. So the implication is I've got to be in this world. I'm a sojourner, right? Traveling through this world, but I'm not to let this world, um, I'm not to let this world rub off on me. I'm to be salt and I'm to be light in this world. And I'm to shine the light of Christ in this world. I'm to point people to Jesus Christ uh, in this world and to the righteousness of God and all those things that come with, with God's truth and God's word. And But I'm to set my mind and my focus on the kingdom of God. That's the ultimate, that's the ultimate thing that my life should be centered around. And I think for most of us as Christians in the Western world, in, in America in particular, Christianity has become, and again, I say this all the time, but Christianity becomes something we do on a weekend rather than who we are every day. And that's, we've we got to change that. We've got to get to the place that Christianity defines who we are in this world. 
and it defines how we vote. It defines the decisions we make. It defines how we spend our money. It defines everything about us, where we send our kids to school, where we go to school. It defines everything about who we are in this world. And we look at this world through a Christian worldview, and we say, hey, I'm going to serve God, right? You, you choose, Joshua said, you choose whatever you want, right? Today is set before you as life and death. You know, I'm going to choose life. You choose whatever you want to. You can serve the gods of this, uh, of this world, but for me, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's got to become who we are, all right? That's who God intends us to be. And we need to understand that, hey, sometimes that brings repercussions, right? Because if you are faithful to Christ, uh, you're going to be in opposition to this world. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. Again, Romans chapter 8. If you live by the flesh, uh, if you live in this carnal carnality, you're at enmity with God. You're an enemy of God. But if you live by the Spirit, right, that, that demonstrates that the love of God is in you. So you're either for him or against him. But be encouraged. That's what Peter is saying to these first century believers. Even though persecution is upon you, be encouraged because of who you are in Christ. And you, uh, you can patiently endure. Even if it's difficult, you know that the Lord is with you and that what he has started in you, he will finish. And that one day Christ is going to come again and everything that God has declared about you will be a present reality in your life in that day. Well, hope that was encouraging to you. We'll finish the, the next section or get into the next section next Sunday. I still have this Thursday left in the class we're doing at Kalaja Volunteer Fire Department. We're teaching or I'm teaching uh, Fire Instructor 1. And so we'll finish that up on Thursday. And so Lord willing, if I have opportunity, uh, we'll see. Uh, maybe we can get into some, uh, some uh, systematic theology. Uh, just have to play that by ear. But hey, I hope that you'll go find this on uh, YouTube. Like, share, and subscribe. And that you'll go find it on the podcast. That you, again, you'll like, share, and subscribe. Leave comments. Uh, give a good review. And uh, until next time, may the Lord bless and keep you and cause his face uh, to shine upon you.